You're listening to sermon audio from The Shore Church, located in North Vancouver. For more information about The Shore, head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Well, good morning. Uh, Like Jer said, my name is Freddie. I am one of the pastors at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford. So if you drive out that direction, uh, you may have heard of us. Uh, My role there is the small groups pastor. I've been there about five years uh, and then uh, my wife, Rebecca, is gathered there this morning with, with our little boy, Isaiah. So I came with my, my friend Deepak, friend Amanda. So it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, since many of you don't know me, I figured I'd share a little bit more about my doings at Northview to kind of give you a picture of who Freddie is. Uh, I came to Canada in 2013 for a mission trip. Uh, and Canadians need Jesus too. You might not know that, but they do. Uh, and we, the training was in Abbotsford, and then we ended up going to Thailand. On that trip, I met a girl named Rebecca, who I ended up marrying. So uh, because of that relationship, I came to Canada, studied at CBC, and then from CBC moved to Northview. And that is the only church I've been to in Canada. I've been here nine years, attended Northview for nine of them, served on staff for five. Uh, all five years have been with community groups, with small groups, or we call them community groups, but every church calls them something different, life groups, core groups, connection groups, right? There's a million names for them. Uh, And I have loved my time there, Uh, but this summer, in like a week and a half, I will be transitioning to the young adults pastor role. So some big changes coming for me. We're also expecting our second child in, in October, Lord willing, October 11th. So some big changes in the Orozco home. Uh, And all of these changes, uh, there's a reason I'm telling you all this, all of these changes uh, have have got me thinking about the future, Uh, not just for my own family, but for young adult ministry, right? Young adults are, uh, they're they're important, right? Children are important, and they grow up to be young adults, and these little people who we deeply love make their own decisions, and they face big decisions, right, career paths and spouses and where they will live, all kinds of things. Uh, and as, as I think of the young adults ministry at Northview, uh, I'm like, what, what is, what do I want my focus to be? What's the vision for, you know, the next five years, the next 10 years of young adults ministry? And as I think of that, uh, I think there's, there's two ingredients that Northview young adults needs to have. Uh, we need to emphasize preach about, model authentic faith, right? So like the born again, like I change my behavior because I know Jesus. I'm following him, not just on Sunday morning, but every day of the week. I'm a 365.25, you know, because of the leap year. Like I'm a Christian, even on leap years. Like I'm a Christian and I want to change my life because the Lord Jesus commands me to do some things and to avoid others. So I want to talk about authentic faith. Uh, and I also want to talk about wisdom, right, because young adults face a lot of non-moral decisions. Like I, I mentioned my moving to Canada. When, when I moved to Canada in 2013, I had been dating Rebecca for one month, which I, I don't know what kind of life decisions you have made, but I would not recommend moving countries. I grew up in the States. Right? I moved you know, like nine hours up the I-5 to be near a girl that I'd been dating for a month, right? Bold move. It worked out for me. But young people face that kind of decision, right? Spouses, careers, location where they are going to put down roots and live, the church they're going to attend. 
And in those non-moral decisions, they need wisdom. So authentic faith and wisdom. I think young adults need that. Uh, and as I think of young adults, I think of people like yourselves, people of various ages. Uh, and I think people of various ages need that too. I think everyone needs authentic faith uh, and wisdom. And as you look through Ecclesiastes 5, you might not see it right away, but I think both of these topics are discussed. And there's a simple lesson in these three verses in, the, in chapter 5 that we should guard our steps. So that's all I'm going to talk about today, guard your steps. Uh, Jer already read the passage, so I have two points today. The first one is don't be rash with words. So don't be rash with words. Ecclesiastes, as you're probably aware, you're in the middle of this series, is, is wisdom literature. So wisdom literature are, are general truths that are communicated to lead people to the good life, right? To help you go this way and not that way. And the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, he has one primary concern. He wants to help people like you and me understand what life is, like find purpose, find meaning in life under the sun, right? That's the phrase that he uses. He talks about life being meaningless. There's toil under the sun, but his goal isn't to help you feel like depressed about what life is like. His goal is to help you find meaning in your life under the sun as you fear God. And the book, he, he deals with a variety of topics, all questions stemming from that main, that main goal of, of life under the sun. And he shares these general truths to help you go a particular way in your life. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 3 focuses specifically on the way that we talk. The, the preacher has wisdom for how we talk. And there's three specific ways that he shares people go wrong in their speech. All of them show up in verse 2. First, people go wrong in their speech, right? People don't go the right way. They go the wrong way in rash words. People will say things that they wish they could take back, right? We've all experienced this, right? Where we say something and the moment it leaves your lips, you wish you could take it back. Uh, I remember in elementary school, I had a, a teacher who handed all the kids like the little to-go packs or travel, not to-go packs, I guess every toothpaste is a to-go pack because they're fully sealed, but uh, the travel packs of toothpaste. And you, you got a paper towel and you had to squeeze out the toothpaste as much as you could in like 15 seconds. And every kid is like squeezing out the toothpaste. Uh, and then the teacher was like, all right, now put the toothpaste back in the tube. And you can't. Like toothpaste, out of to or toothpaste flows out of the tube one way. Theoretically, you can get it back in, but it is a messy endeavor our words are like that. You say things and they flow real easy, but there are so many moments where we can't take the thing we said back. We said a rash word that we wish we could take back and we can't. There's stories in the Bible of foolish people, right? Not wise, but foolish people who did this very thing. So one of, one of the famous ones is Saul. So Saul in the Old Testament, he was the king that preceded David. And, and Saul is the, the classic fool. He said things that he wished he could take back. Uh, there's one specific story where in the middle of, of a great battle where he's leading the people of Israel against the Philistines, uh, a tribal group in Canaan that's opposing them, he, he pronounces a, a curse where he, he takes this vow and he says, cursed be anyone who eats food before I'm avenged on my enemies. He speaks this rash word very quickly. And he did not know this, but his son in the middle of the battle 
ended up eating honey, ended up eating food. And Saul's saying, this man should be cursed. Like, this man should be killed. And at the end of the battle, the people have to go the entire day without fight, with, like, the whole day fighting. And at the end of the day, they're, they're exhausted, right? If, if you've ever, you know, done a, a full day of outside labor, right? Like, right now it's sunny. So if you garden, so imagine gardening and not drinking anything. It's 30 degrees outside. You haven't drunk anything. You haven't eaten anything because your king foolishly said something that he should take back. And at the end of the day, now you have a cow here in front of you. And all these soldiers that are starving from the full day, they just, they start, they kill the animals and start eating. And they end up eating like raw, raw meat, like, which in Hebrew law was a sin. So Saul said something he wished he could take back that put his son's life in danger. He said something that led his people into sin. And then at the end, it's judgment day, right? He stands before the people and he's like, who was it that led these people into sin? Who let them eat? Who was the bad example? And it, they find out, well, it was Jonathan. And Saul orders his own son to be executed. And you're like, in that moment, you're like, dude, like you can, you can take it back, right? Or you should take it back. But Saul doesn't. He spoke something and refuses to take it back. This man is an example of foolish speech. Ecclesiastes 5 is warning us about foolish, speak, peep, foolish speech. People say things that they should take back, and for whatever reason, they don't. Saul should have said, I, I did not mean to say that. I repent of saying that. I don't want my son to be executed. But he doubled down, and the people ended up delivering his son, but he lost a tremendous amount of face. He lost a tremendous amount of respect because he's the kind of man who speaks things that should be taken back. Uh, if you were listening to that story and you're like, I have never said someone should die, and you think it doesn't apply to you, you praise God, I'm glad that you've never pronounced death on someone. But we all do the very same kind of thing, where we say things that we wish we could take back, right? A good test of like, did I say something that I should take back, is if you say something and no one really answers, right? You have the awkward silence where people are like, I don't want to engage with that because it was like mean. So you might not experience this, but I experience this when I drive. As I'm driving, I will occasionally make moral judgments about the character of the people next to me based on the speed they're going, based on the lane they're in, based on uh, their use of turn signals. And as I'm like pronouncing woes on these people, quite often my wife will be sitting next to me and she's kind of doing this. I said something that I should probably take back, right? Some it's awkward because sometimes you say things and like you actually know the people that you've said things against, right? We do this. We say terrible things. Uh, we make comments about uh, the way that other families raise their children, right? We make comments about the character of people. And if you say something and people are silent, it might be something that you should take back. Ecclesiastes 5 is warning us about rash words, about words that are hurtful. Secondly, we see a warning against hasty words. Again, this is in, in verse 2. And hasty words are things that we say without thinking, right? Things that we have either the inability or no desire to actually carry them out. We feel something and we speak, right? Our heart feels something and it flows north and it comes out of our mouth before our mind can actually examine what it is that we're saying. Our mouth outpaces our mind quite often. Again, there's an Old Testament example of this. The, the character Jephthah, if you're unfamiliar with Jephthah, 
He's a judge in the Old Testament. And he, the judges were the people that ruled Israel before they were kings, like before Saul, before David, before Solomon. And Jephthah is a guy who has a difficult family circumstance. He doesn't have a dad. And he is approached by the elders of a city, the leadership of a city. And they say, if you fight for us, if you win this battle, uh, we, will, like, we will serve you. Like, you'll become our king. And a guy who has no inheritance is looking forward to this opportunity. So he jumps at the opportunity. And then because he's so excited at this possibility, he, he prays to God. And in an effort to like really gain God's favor, he says, God, if you give me the victory in this great battle, whatever comes out of my house when I return home, I will sacrifice to you. It doesn't matter what it is, Lord. I'm generous. You be generous to me, I'll be generous to you. Right? He makes a deal. Jephthah fights his battle and he returns home. And as he's returning home, his daughter comes out of the house to celebrate, right? Dad came home with victory. And now Jephthah has a decision to make, right? He spoke hastily. He did not consider that if I say whatever comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to the Lord. Like I have family that lives there. That's actually a dumb thing to say that he has an inability or no desire to carry out. But Jephthah, again, Jephthah cares about the opinions of others and he ends up sacrificing his daughter, a wicked act, a terrible thing by a leader amongst the people of Israel. Jephthah spoke without thinking and there were terrible circumstances. Our hasty words, they don't often lead to someone's death, but our hasty words also have terrible circumstances uh, in our lives. We say things that we often have no desire to actually carry out. Uh, I, have, I have a son, 15 months old, and I'm already experiencing this in, in parenting where you have the desire to like, shape your children in a particular way, to guide them to a particular kind of life, and there are moments where you can say things that you have no desire to actually follow through with, right? Don't touch that, but you don't get up and actually go physically remove them, right? We, we threaten, right? We do this in parenting as they get a little bit older, right? We often threaten the kids, right? Don't make me get up. Don't make me get up. Like, if you do that again, there will be consequences. But these are hasty words. We actually haven't thought through, what is it that I'm correcting? What is it that I would like to see my child do? We don't think through the consequences of what we are saying. We say rash things. We say hasty things. We say many things. The third one here in verse 2 uh, is that we often say things that have no point. We're, we're just babbling. Uh, it is incontinence of the mouth, if you will. If you don't know what incontinence is, uh, think food poisoning, right? And things are coming out, whether you like it or not. And people are like that with their words. We all know people like that. If you don't know anyone like that, you might be that person who just constantly, things are coming out. And as these things are coming out, we never stop to ask, like, am I saying something that is a benefit to these people? Am I encouraging them? Am I building them up? Am I correcting? Am I helping the situation that I'm speaking into? We don't often ask that question. Uh, George Orwell is an English author. He wrote an essay about speech. And he made the comment that, that people who speak a lot, people who write a lot, people who have many words, uh, they're either hiding something or they have nothing to say. And we are so, we, so often, as we say so many things, it's because we, we have nothing to say. We have nothing positive to say. We don't really know what to say, so we just babble. We have many, many words. And if you have many words, 
you set yourself up for many problems. We've all done this, right? We've all put our foot in our mouth with the things that we've said. I experienced one, like, it's funny the things that you remember. One of my most vivid memories of Freddie at a young age putting his foot in his mouth was in grade three, we, we were lining up for recess, and I, uh, I grew up in a pretty conservative home, uh, and I was a very literal kid, like, which maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. Uh, and I had a classmate who had a t-shirt that said, Little Angel. Uh, and I was like, well, angels have six wings and eyeballs all over, and you don't look like that at all. So uh, I don't think you're an angel. And Freddie, in his wisdom, could have chosen A, to say nothing, could have chosen B, to say something to someone else. Both of those would have been better. I chose option C. I stood next to this girl, and I was like, uh, you don't look like an angel. I don't know why you would wear that shirt. And this girl starts bawling, like crying, crying, crying. Uh, I got detention, of course, well-deserved. Uh, and this was one of literally hundreds of moments in Freddie's life where I said something that I should have taken back. In that moment, because I had so many words, I was saying things that did not need to be said. I spoke a rash thing. And this is the way it works. If, if you're thinking of the way that you talk to people and you're like, well, I'm not typically a mean person, so I don't do the rash words. And you know, I, I don't talk that fast, not like Freddie. So I, I'm not hasty. But if you talk enough, you will have an opportunity to give rash words or hasty words. Scripture warns us about this. Proverbs 26.20, it says these words. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. The image there is that if you have a fire and you stop adding wood, the fire does go out. If you have a life and you're constantly adding words, the fire rises. This is something that we experience in our lives. Many words, hasty words, rash words. The scripture in Ecclesiastes 5 convicts us, it should convict us, that we sin in our speech. Like we say things that we should not say. We say things that we should take back. And with our many words in which all of us have failed, like we, we have an, an uncomfortable reality to face. Like, how can I change? Like, what, what is God going to do with someone like me who says things rashly, hastily, too much? And our experience of speaking poorly is a direct contrast to the person of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is the kind of person who speaks kindly. Jesus is the kind of person who says the right thing at the right time to be a blessing to all the people who hear him. And that ministry of his did not cease when he died, resurrected, and ascended to return to heaven. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus continues to speak a good word over us. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So when you and I say rash things, we say hasty things, we say many things, and we have sin in our life, Jesus is standing there before the Father and he says, I've forgiven them. God, show them mercy. God, I am working on them to help them grow and tame their tongue. This is good news for you and me because all of us fall short in the way that we speak. 
In Ecclesiastes 5, I think we learn that we should not be rash with words, but we are. So then what's, what's the next step? Like, how, how can I change? Because we, we're Christians, we want to change. I think the very first step, like if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I, I would like to be better in the way that I speak to people. The very first step, I think, is we would be better off if we spoke less. That's a very simple thing that any one of us can do. When we speak less, I think we, like the passage warns, we avoid many words which lead us into other, other sins. Uh, but it also frees us from one of the reasons that I think we speak so often. If, if we pause for a second and we look in the mirror and we ask the diagnostic question, like, why is it that I say what I say. Like, think back of the last time that you said something that you had to apologize for, or that you should have apologized for, but didn't get the chance. If you think of that, why did you say that? Why did you have the tone that you had? Why did you speak in that moment to that person in that way? And I think so often, the reason that we say what we say is because we are so concerned with the opinion of those people. We are so concerned with what they think about us or what they think about the situation. We see this phenomenon in Matthew 6, 7 to 8. This passage reads as follows. This is Jesus speaking about the Pharisees. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus is condemning the behavior of the Pharisees who would do the public prayer thing, right? Like the big hands and God, I just feel like God, you need to move right now and God, I worship you. Big, big show. And Jesus looks at them and he says, these people, they care so much about the praise of man. And he'll go on in the same passage to say, they have received the reward. They're, they're speaking in a way to gather in the approval of man. I think when we stumble with many words, with hasty words, with rash words, so often we're doing that because we seek the same kind of approval of man. When, when we pause, when we speak less, we are trusting God in that circumstance. We are letting go of control of the narrative. We're saying God, God controls the story. We're letting go of the opinions of others and we're saying God hardens and softens human hearts. So God, I trust you with how those people think about me. That's an incredibly hard thing for us to do. And, and we see in James 1:19 and 20, we see that scripture actually encourages us to speak less. It reads as follows. Know this, my beloved brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1 is echoing the same warning in Proverbs 26. If there's a lot of wood, the fire rises. If there's a lot of words, anger rises. If we're the kind of people who want to avoid bad speech, who want to avoid speaking like fools, going this way and not the way of the wise, not towards life, we can start by saying less. I'm not telling you never to speak. I'm saying the things that we say, if we examine why we say them, I think quite often we can say less. And in speaking less, there's tremendous wisdom. As you avoid the path of the fool, 
and go the path of the wise. I think the first thing we learn in this passage is to not be rash with words. The second thing we learn in this passage is to draw near to listen. So I'll read Ecclesiastes 5 one more time. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Again, Ecclesiastes 5 is dealing with this contrast. There's the way of the wise and there's the way of the fool. And the preacher is saying, go the way of the wise. Avoid the foolish path that causes people to speak hasty words, many words, uh, rash words, and go the path of the wise, of the person who draws near to the house of God to listen. That's the contrast in, in verse 1. There are the wise who draw near to God to listen, and there are the fool who offer a sacrifice, right? The, the sacrifice of many words, uh, of rash words. The preacher is speaking about a very specific situation here. As you draw near to the house of God, so he has a specific location in mind. Uh, obviously, it would be the temple in Jerusalem. The preacher, right, Solomon is writing and he's saying, I, as you draw near to God, there is a the right place, right? You, you draw to the temple and there's a right posture of heart that you ought to have. And this, this, the, the right place is the temple temple was built by Solomon, and all of Jewish worship was focused on this physical building. Uh, there was three pilgrim feasts throughout the calendar year, so there were three times where people would go to the temple to offer sacrifices to commemorate different occasions. Uh, they would go during the Passover when they were celebrating God delivering the people of, of, of Israel through the Exodus out of slavery in Egypt. So they would go and they would give sacrifices, and they would travel great distances. Uh, they would go during the Feast of, of Weeks or First Fruits, where they would celebrate the, the blessing of God as, as their crops started to sprout. Uh, and they would go again in the Feast of Booths, where they would celebrate God providing for them during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So there was three different occasions where people would go to this building. And on top of that, there were specific psalms that were sung as people approached the temple, that were sung in worship at the temple. So this building was the center of Hebrew worship. So as people draw near to the house of God, there's a right place to go, the house of God, and a right posture. And we see the posture in, in the language that he uses, right? That they draw near to, to listen. I think when someone draws near to listen, it requires humility on their part to be willing to hear be willing to receive rather than give. They're, they're putting an emphasis on, on the person that they're drawing near to. I think when we think of what faith is, I think we recognize that both of those components are required not just for Hebrew worship, but for our own. We need the right place and, and, and we need the right posture. Uh, we see this in normal life too. Like you want to be in the right place and, and you want the right posture. Uh, in normal life, like when you are out shopping, uh, you, we interact with people who are employees, right? They're in the right place, uh, but quite often they don't have the right posture, right? My, my wife the other day was, was out buying nail polish, trying to get those summer colors. Uh, I don't really know what she bought, but she was there and she walked into a store 
and the employee was there. She's in the right place. Uh, and every question that my wife asked was answered. Uh, but the girl, for about 15 minutes, was texting the entire time. So she was sitting there like this. Yeah, the color's over there. Yeah, I don't think we have that. No, that's not on sale. And the entire interaction for 15 minutes was very unprofessional. But in that story, we see that the right place is not enough, right? You want the right place and the right posture. Like this girl could have made eye contact. This girl could have like talked to Rebecca. There are things in life that are much weightier than purchasing nail polish. I think the worship of God is much weightier than purchasing nail polish. So when we draw near to God, I think the, the advice that the preacher has for his audience is the same advice he would give to us. You need to be in the right place and you need to have the right posture. Our world is different because we don't have a temple. So we don't have to be in the right physical location, right? We gather like this. We gather with other Christians on Saturdays or on Sundays. So the, the command of the physical location is not as clear. But the posture, I think, is just as clear, just as necessary in our life. Christians today, I think, need humility as they gather with one another. I want to define that word real quick. You could define it a variety of ways, but in the context of Ecclesiastes 5, I think humility means big thoughts about God and few thoughts about self. I think this is a really important definition for us as we look through this passage, because quite often we interpret humility or we define it in a, in a somewhat toxic way. So we will say, okay, big thoughts about God and small thoughts about me. And it leads to this self-deprecation where, where we think really poorly of ourselves, where we put ourselves down and only emphasize our bad qualities, all the ways that we fail. I don't think that's humility. Or we'll say big thoughts about God and no thoughts about self. And we'll ignore our, our, our basic needs for, for relationship, our basic needs for, for rest. So when we define humility, quite often we end up in, in the ditch, right, on, on either of those small thoughts or no thoughts. But if we define humility as big thoughts about God and few thoughts about self, I'm not worried about myself. I'm, I'm drawing near. I'm gathered with these people because I, I want to think big about God. I know there's a God. I want to know that God. I want to know what that God, what his will is for my life. That requires humility. That requires you, as you draw near, to have the right posture. That's the right posture of heart. If, if we're talking about the right posture, like I, I think that is an outflow. Like it's not actually a goal. It is a, a, an outflow of, of a genuine faith. Like if, if you are coming here and, and you're thinking, I want to think big thoughts about God, you might not actually get there. But if you're coming here and you're thinking, I, I, I want to be you know, a born-again Christian, I want to grow in my faith, that pushes you in the direction where you are focused on the Lord. You are drawn to big thoughts about God. I think the passage here in Ecclesiastes 5 reminds us of how we should think big thoughts about God. In verse 2, we read the phrase, God is in heaven and you are on earth. The, the preacher is contrasting not just our physical locations, but the difference in our beings. See, God is up there. God is morally perfect. He is loving, just, righteous, forgiving, merciful, kind. 
and we do all of those things. We also can be those things, but we're also the opposite. We're selfish, angry, greedy, mean. So God is in heaven and you are on earth. As, as we examine who God is, we're reminded that God is big, God is great. And then God is eternally wise. Like God knows the end from the beginning. God knows the story. God is working in human history. So again, we're reminded that our own human limitations are like, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I, I, I don't know, you know what, what my life will look like in 10 years. I don't know what my kids will look like. Uh, I don't know uh, where I'll end up with uh, in terms of like ministry career. So we, we have limitations. And those limitations are what the, the preacher has in mind as he reminds us, God is in heaven and you are on earth. There, there is a distance between God and man. But I think that the rest of the Bible adds a little bit of clarity to this picture. If, if all you had was Ecclesiastes 5, I, I think you're left with a little bit of discomfort, a, a little bit of, of fear, honestly, where, well, if I'm here and I'm, I'm not like God, I'm not morally perfect, I'm not wise, and God is there, well, how can I get there? But we have a full Bible, and that full Bible teaches us other things, at namely Ephesians 2.18, that even though we are on earth, physically distant from God, we are spiritually near to him because we have access through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.18 says this, through him, through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So Jesus, when, when he came on earth, he promised his disciples, I'm going to die for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to resurrect and I'm going to return to heaven. I'm going to send back to the throne. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be with you and will empower you for Christian life. A part of that, a part of Christian life is that you are spiritually near to the Lord every single day, every single moment, whether you are aware of it or not. We are physically distant, but we are spiritually near. We have the best reception in the universe as we communicate with God. Uh, our experience in this life is not that. Right? So I, I was traveling to Alberta a few weeks ago uh, with, with my family, right? 15-month-old, in the car, 12 hours. So we were already a little bit nervous, and just outside of Sparwood, so like Crow's Nest passed, uh, there was a car accident. Uh, and, and ended up being fatal. So they, they ended up blocking off the highway and it took about three hours for them to let traffic through again. If you've traveled the Crow's Nest Pass, uh, you know that in that area, cell phone reception, quite, oh, cell phone reception, just like that mic, is quite spotty. And I'm sitting there in traffic. I, my son has been in the car for nine hours, 10 hours, and he's like looking at me and you can tell when kids are like done, right? And he is done. And I'm like, I have no internet. Uh, I can't call the in-laws to tell them, you know, get, get the bath ready, get the pack and play ready. Uh, I, I can't download anything, so I can't listen to music. I can't listen to podcasts. Uh, I can't access Cocoa Melon. My kid is going bananas. So in that moment, I was tremendously angry because of, of bad reception. I, I could not get through the Kudo Towers, and I could not access all the things that I wanted to. Our life is like that. We experience that, not just in cell phones, but in our communication with others. There are always obstacles as we communicate, and, and we have bad communication. 
and what Ephesians 2.18 is promising and adding to what we learn in Ecclesiastes 5 is that when the Christian communicates with God, there are no obstacles, like none. Jesus got rid of all of them. Through him, we have access. Not a little bit of access, not spotty access, but direct every moment that you could ever want access to God the Father. That is a tremendously different experience than what the preacher talks about in Ecclesiastes 5. In Ecclesiastes 5, he has to go to the temple and he's talking to people about the right posture as they draw near. You and I can go before the Father at any moment in prayer through the Spirit. Our posture isn't just for when we are drawing near to the temple or to the church. Our right posture is like a lifestyle, like an all kind of life thing, because at any moment we can draw near God. When, when we talk about what Christian life is, I think Christian life requires a certain humility where we, we think big thoughts about God because we can access him at any time. So we should think big about him, think few thoughts about ourselves. And the question, of course, is, okay, if I, if I can do that, right? Okay, I can draw near, the God, near God the Father in prayer. Like, what, what are the kind of things I can do to foster a greater humility in my heart? Because I do think big thoughts about God, but, like, not often enough. And I want more. Freddie, how can I have more? If we look at the passage, we're reminded that you, you draw near to God to, to listen and I think from that phrase, we can fill in from the rest of the scriptures what it is that has given to us to build humble hearts in us. So Deuteronomy 8.3, it says these words. He humbled us. God humbled Israel. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8 is reflecting on the wilderness wanderings where God sent manna from heaven. He literally rained bread on his people to feed them. And as Moses reflects on his story, he reminds the people, God did, that God could have fed you anyway, but he fed you in that way so that you would be reminded that God provides for us and that from God's mouth, we have what we need. Not just in this bread as God declared it, but in his word. Jesus quotes this later in the, in the wilderness when he is being tempted by Satan in reference to the word of God as he rejects bread and, and prioritizes the scriptures. So when we ask the question, how can, how can I build the right kind of posture in my heart? How can I work towards that? I think it is time in the word. When we spend time reading God's word, it feeds us, right? That's the language of Deuteronomy 8, but it also feeds us so that we, we grow in humility. This word reminds us that God is big. This word reminds us that God is doing something in human history, that he's working to save sinners for his glory, and he's working to make all things new. So this story is what keeps us humble, and that humility is the right posture as we draw near to God. Uh, Jesus again, makes the same point uh, in John 15, 4 to 5, where he, he makes the point that if we have humble hearts, if we're drawing near to God, that is what builds an abiding faith in us. 
John 15, 4 to 5, abide in me and I in you as the branch bears fruit by itself, or as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, pardon me, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he or it is them that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When we read God's word, it shapes our heart. It builds a humility into us that helps us think big thoughts about God and few thoughts about ourselves. And it is that that builds this lasting, this abiding faith. When, when we look at Ecclesiastes 5, when we look at this Old Testament wisdom, I think so often we, we can just quickly like, move past it, right? We read through it in our reading plan and we're, we're moving on, right? It, it's, it's foreign to us. But this wisdom literature, it teaches us how to live. It teaches us to go the path of the wise and not the path of the fool. And I think people like us, as, as we think of that in our life, as we think, how can I go the path of the wise? What are the kind of things that I need to do? I think we're reminded, and hopefully you're reminded today, that we need authentic faith and, and we need wisdom. And a way, a good reminder of that is that phrase that we, we must guard our steps. All of life is opportunities for you to speak a certain way, to think a certain way. And if you want to grow in your faith as a Christian, you must guard your steps. So I, I want to remind you today that Christian life is an everyday experience. And every day we have the, the choice, are we going to speak rash words, hasty words, many words, or are we going to draw near to the Lord to listen? I hope that you choose the, choose the path of the wise. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this day. I uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here and teach from your word. Lord, I pray uh, that uh, people's hearts would be moved. That as we think of you, Father, help us think big thoughts about you and few thoughts about ourselves. Help us guard our steps, Lord. We need your help. We cannot do this on our own. Uh, we are thankful you've given the Spirit, so we pray that by the Spirit's strength, we can live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from The Shore Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not charge for it. Learn more about The Shore at www.theshorechurch.ca.